in order to grow, you need to be challenged. And it's usually the mistakes that we make that give us the information to do better the next time. I think part of the reason that I like climbing is that I am challenged and I, I learn. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Thank you so much for welcoming me into your ears as today we chalk up for a chat with the greatest of all time, Lynn Hill. Now it's hard to overstate just how impactful, badass, and groundbreaking Lynn has been in the sport of rock climbing and beyond. If you're a climber, then you're standing on her shoulders just like I am and so many others. You guys, Lynn's been a dominant force in pretty much every discipline of climbing. She's won World Cups as a comp climber. She was the first woman to on-site 8A. She was the first woman to climb 514. And most famously, she was the first human, man or woman, to free climb El Cap, as well as the first human, man or woman, to free it in a day. What was once thought to be impossible, just back in the mid-90s when I was in high school, Lynn proved was possible. With her famous line, it goes boys, Lynn smashed not only the glass ceiling on the sport of rock climbing, but also egos, doubts, and the common conventions of rock climbing at the time. Lynn continues to climb at an incredibly high level to this day, as well as champion gender equality and environmental issues as a fierce and outspoken advocate. Today, we look back at her incredible career in life through the lens of struggle, and we're going to cover a lot of new territory in this chat that's both inspiring and useful for climbers of all levels. Y'all, I'm so excited for you to join this chat with the impressively talented, bold, and humble Lynn Hill. I'm so psyched that the official climbing nutrition sponsor of the struggle is Fizzy Vantage. You guys, if you haven't tried Fizzy Vantage, now is the time. I've been using it for over a year now as a paying customer, and the stuff is truly the best of the best if you want to level up your training and performance. Does it work? Well, in the past year, I pushed my personal sport grade from 11B to 12C, and yeah, I credit Fizzy Vantage in helping me to get there. I use their revolutionary supercharged collagen every day to keep my fingers strong and healthy, and I also love Endurex to support my performance on those long, pumpy roots at the red that I love so much. Science-backed, used by more than 50 pros and thousands of weekend warriors like you and me, Fizzy Vantage is the real deal if you're serious about climbing, training, and performance. Swing on over to FizzyVantage.com to learn more about their innovative products. Just hit that link in your show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15%. Just try it. I'm telling you, it is the best of the best. This episode is also sponsored by Athletic Greens. Y'all have heard of these guys. They have over 7,000 five-star reviews and are recommended by tons of pro athletes. I started taking AG1 because getting sick sucks and I wanted to optimize my immune system. Plus, I kind of just wanted to see what the hype was all about. And I'm telling you, I love it. I start every day with it. It tastes great. And I love that it supports gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, and focus. Basically all the things, you guys. And it's way cheaper than buying supplements. It's also really cool that they're a carbon neutral company. I really think you should check them out. And they're going to make it easy on you. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com struggle. 
Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash struggle to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. This show is also supported by the patrons of The Struggle. That is you, or at least some of you. Thank you guys so much for signing up and supporting the hard work that goes into bringing these incredible stories to the world. If you're listening to these shows and you see value in what we're doing, please consider popping over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show and joining the community as a patron. For as little as three bucks a month, you'll be supporting me and the climbers that work our butts off to get this show done. You're going to score some swag and you can gain access to some really cool exclusive content that we have in the works. So if these shows are worth a cup of coffee to you, we would love that caffeine. Head over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to learn more. Thank you. I love you. The struggle's carbon neutral thanks to a partnership with the Handel Foundation, whose mission is to promote solar energy for a more equitable world. And as you'll hear in my chat with Lynn, the two things she's most passionate about are equality and the environment. And that is exactly what the Handel Foundation is supporting with its work. Swing on over to HandelFoundation.org to consider setting up a monthly donation like I did. It's easy and feels good. And while you're there, you can learn about the wonderful projects that they are supporting. And lastly, y'all, after my chat with Lynn, stick around for a couple minutes to hear my takeaways and also how you can score a signed print from Lynn. All right, get ready to tie in with a goat because here comes Lynn Hill. Well, hey, Lynn, welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show. It is awesome to see you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, it really is just such an honor to be talking to you, Lynn, and I cannot wait to jump in, talk about, you know, struggle, training, nutrition, tactics, mental game, the usual format for this show. But first, I think it's worth noting that you are Lynn Hill, and in my eyes, and I think so many in the climbing community, you are the greatest rock climber of all time. I wouldn't say that about myself, but... um you know, I, I would say that I had the right position at the right time, the right passion for climbing. It was definitely and it still is something so a part of who I am and who I was even before I knew what climbing was. I was climbing trees. I was climbing anything, you know, watching uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I realize now it's not a great movie in the, in the way that I remembered it. it. was, But there were sections of it where they were scrambling and they were in nature. And I thought it was really cool. Of course, who wouldn't love Robert Redford and, you know, Paul Newman? <laughs> but anyway, it's just been in my blood for a long time. And I think the advocacy, mostly in, in the case of my career, related to breaking barriers as a young woman and, and then as a woman. And still, there's a lot of categories. I, I think that the world is changing, but stereotypes do still exist and they're subconsciously there. And I think if you don't question yourself and question your motivations, and I think that's really important for climbing as well, when you are really sincerely engaged in the process of climbing, you do better because you're not thinking about the secondary things in your head about, oh, I got to do this because X, Y, Z, somebody's watching you or whatever. It, it's a whole different experience when you're really engaged in the process of doing it. And that's the moving meditation that really keeps me engaged in climbing after 46, 47 years now, I think, <laughs> since 1975. Well, and, and what a 47 years it has been. 
I mean, Lynn, you've pushed the top end of climbing in every aspect, basically, from comp to trad, sport, big walls in a day. You've just been such a dominant force in the sport. I'm curious to to learn from you what the word struggle means to you through the lens of rock climbing. Oh, I think it's totally appropriate in the sport of climbing, and you can apply it to other aspects of life, really any aspect. In order to grow, you need to be challenged. And it's usually the mistakes that we make that give us the information to do better the next time. I think part of the reason that I like climbing is that I am challenged and I, I learn. And sometimes it's just about moving and it's more about flow, but there's always a certain challenge and, and a mental discipline, which I think is, is more than just the mind. It's the whole connection of mind-body community too. And I think a lot of people really, especially in gym culture today, they go to the gym and that's their community. I think that's also really important as far as what gives people meaning is that connection. Yeah, absolutely. And you've been climbing for so long, you've seen the sport evolve in such profound ways. Has your relationship and your perspective on struggle itself evolved over the years? I think I started climbing in a, in a culture that really, I think, embraced struggle more than nowadays. Now it's just more objectives to get to a certain standard of do V15 or climb 515 at the high end. Not everybody wants to do that. But, you know, I think that climbing is also very inclusive. And I really love that about climbing too. Anyone can enjoy climbing and it's at your level of struggle, what you can handle. And I think that the more you do it, the better you get at adapting and and dealing with the struggle without losing your composure and losing your focus of what you need to pay attention to because there's a lot going on. Because if I'm in a, a moment where I'm really tired, whatever the red flag might be, or I don't want to fall because it might be unpleasant, I pause, I take a breath, I look around, I might change a position, but I, I don't go in the, into that next move until I've figured out what I've, I'm going to do. And, and I'm sure I'm going to do it or sure enough. I feel like there's a metaphor for life in there somewhere. Don't move forward until you're confident about where you're at. Take a deep breath and really study where you're going. Is that something that you've carried over into your life beyond climbing? Yes, I think I've had the luxury to be able to reflect. I think being a climber, it gives us that space. Like if you're on, you know, a, a multi-pitch climb or whatever, just anywhere climbing, you have time to actually be in that environment, in nature, which I think is, is calming. It's been proven being in nature is therapeutic. And um, I think it helps us connect on a lot of levels to ourselves too. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree. That's personally the, the reason that I got into climbing was to be able to spend more time out in nature. And, and when I started climbing, it was on like these trad routes out in, you know, some of your old stomping grounds out in like Takeets and Suicide Rocks and Jay Tree. Um, of course, you've been everywhere, but I know you've spent a lot of time out there. And just being out in nature is the best, whether you're performing at your limit or not, just being able to really feel that that connection. And sometimes that exposure really puts you in the right mind frame. So, yeah, thanks for that perspective, Lynn. And, and let's, okay, let's just dive in now. Let's nerd out and get into training for for a minute here. And so I'm curious to learn from you where you may have struggled in your training, Lynn. Okay, so back in the, the early days, our idea of training was a backer ladder, right? Set up. That's right. 
on an angle about that, you don't want a really steep one because then it just swings around and people got tendonitis in their elbows and wasn't that great. But you could practice lock-offs. And then I think in Camp 4, they had wood blocks. I think they'd probably learned that from the English who glued things down in these dungy basements and stuff. But nowadays, the mood board, basically born out of that culture, the dungy English training room where people would get amazingly strong, Jerry Moffat, Ben Moon, and then other people, friends around that. But um, that is what I would consider my biggest weakness. And that is moonboarding because your feet are on these slopers and I'm always stretched out and it's so powerful. But if there were one thing that I could do to be a much better climber, it would be the moonboard. But um, recommending that to other people, I think it depends on your level of climbing, what your base is, what your, your power is, how your fingers are. Because it's as, as good as it is, it could be very dangerous for somebody who is not at that level put their fingers or whatever. Oh, yeah. God, the moonboard just wrecks me. I mean, I'm, you know, the, the highest grade I've climbed on, on sport is 12C, and I frequently have a hard time and get shut down just doing like the easiest benchmarks on the moonboard. So yeah, definitely a struggle for me as well, but I'm working on it. And yeah, I'm curious what your moonboard routine is like. It's depending on what's going on in my life, you know. I did a little bit of moonboarding today after a climbing session, but I generally will climb for a couple of hours in the gym. And I've just started doing a little bit on the, uh, the tension hangboard. That's actually, I want to be really careful because my joints, one of them is not happy with me. <laughs> after the nose, that actually put a lot of stress on it because they're very small holds and you're really pulling hard many days in a row with improper nutrition, no real fresh foods. That's, that was definitely taxing. All right, Lynn, let's uh, shift to nutrition now. And you just brought that up in the last chapter as we were wrapping up your training. And you mentioned nutrition on the nose or rather improper nutrition on the nose. So yeah, tell me about where you've struggled in your nutrition. On a wall, you can't bring up the kinds of food that you would make down on the ground where you have access to fresh salads and vegetables, and it's a lot easier to cook. And I'd say after a week on the wall with Nina in 2019, we were eating freeze-dried food and had just a few extra things that were like real food. And I just don't think your body can perform like it could if you'd eaten regular food. What about back in the day, like when you were, you were doing these massive pushes, when you freed the nose for the first time, was that six days? No, it was four days. Four days. We broke it up, though. Yeah, four days. Okay, on so that's quite a bit of time on the wall. What does that look like? Nutrition today is you can bring everything up in bar form or in a shake and that kind of thing. I'm, I'm assuming back in the 90s, the landscape was a little bit different. How were you fueling yourself back then? Actually, I didn't eat very much. I remember having like Fig Newtons or something that I got at the store down in the valley. Right. Not much. An apple, maybe, or I tried a banana and it didn't work out. I don't know. It wasn't much food. So it was possible that in 1994, when I did it in a day, that was an issue because I was just climbing pretty much nonstop. It's 23 hours that you were on the wall for that push. Are you mostly then just focused on, on hydration? What is it? How much time do you have when you're pushing so fast and so hard to fuel? I think I'm pretty good at being like a camel. I, I drank water. I drank what I needed, obviously. But I was more focused on following a flow, just 
not second guessing, just climbing in a very natural way, not using energy. So my whole thing was find the flow. I knew where I was going. I knew certain sections pretty well. And the other sections were part of my repertoire of trad climbing from early days in California and, and then Yosemite. So it was a mixture of styles, really. And I think that the sport climbing experiences over in Europe before that, the competitions and all of that, where you have to perform on demand, you know, they're like, okay, next is Lynn Hill, come on out. And you've got to be ready. So there you've got to make sure you've done everything you need to do, hydration, food before, before that, and warmed up and ready to go. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you've just, you've performed at, at the highest levels of so many different kinds of disciplines. When you look at the landscape now of climbers who are pushing the limits, whether it's in comp or on big walls or sport, how much do you attribute to better knowledge and access to nutrition as opposed to the many other aspects of climbing, like training? I was, the first thing I would say is vision, but the vision comes with the whole evolution from the kids today that have access to the culture of climbing through gyms primarily. But if they were interested in outdoor climbing, they could figure out how to do that. Like I did as a teenager, somehow scraped it together to buy a crappy car and went out to Joshua Tree and whatever. So that's definitely an advantage. Definitely better food, more awareness about that. Just like we're more aware of global warming and other things. Like we, we have a bigger vision of the world. It's always going to be the next generation that has to find something new, something better or more creative, more interesting, just an evolution. And it follows in a natural path. I think when you look at climbing movement back in Joshua Tree, there were some 512s, but not that many 513s. The kind of rock that that is, is it doesn't really lend itself to sport climbing like on limestone or even the red. The kinds of movement that we learned were more about balance and little crimps and shifting your weight over a foot and standing up with hardly anything in your hands and crack climbing. And there's, there was a whole different style of climbing. Then as I moved in my life, ironically, further east, I kept going from California, first to Vegas for the year that counts, then New York, then France. And so I've ended up back in the middle of the country now. <laughs> But at each stop, I learned something different on the type of rock it was, the culture around climbing in that area. And then Europe, of course, was a whole nother level, which I was really psyched for. I didn't even know it existed. No, I didn't have any idea what limestone looked like at that point before I went there. All right, Lynn, here we are. We're getting into what really separates you and elevates you above pretty much every other climber in history. And that's technique, tactics. we got mental game coming up here, so I'm excited to dive in. But let's look at it through the lens of struggle. Where have you struggled in your tactics, Lynn? Well, traditional style climbing does require experience of looking at the crack, seeing, depending on what kind of gear you have. In the beginning, we didn't really have that many friends, so it was all passive, like, stoppers and things you had to wedge into little spots. So you had to strategize rope drag for slings and where the route was going, when you could stop, hang on, fiddle around with the gear, clip it in. So it was definitely a more of a, a strategy. Yeah, trad gear really has come a, a long way since then. And stylistically, it has evolved, but it's it stayed pretty traditional. But then sport climbing, that's been the hugest evolution since 
your day when you were really pushing the limits as you helped to pioneer what, what modern sport climbing is. So contrast what the sports scene was like for us um, back then when you were pushing into it. Sport climbing was natural to me because I was a gymnast. And when the whole style changed from trad and people being frowned upon if they used sport climbing tactics like working a route, they called that hangdogging. So you were not a noble climber somehow. You'd lost some points in pure style. But the whole thing doesn't make sense other than philosophical because it's not a mountain. It's not like you're going step by step up first ascent of a Mount Everest or whatever, any mountain. And I think that's the ethic that was cast onto climbing, which was training for the mountains. And then at a certain point, I think people realized that they didn't need to impose these rules. It was actually impeding progress because people were not allowed to work out the move. So they would go back down to the ground and, you know, maybe they got injured because they had to do the same move so many times. But I was there the day that they were trying to do this climb vandals. In fact, they were like, hey, Lenny, come here. We've got sky hooks taped to the rock on two different ropes. And they're like, you're small. We'll catch you if you fall, but just get us up to that ledge. So I got the rope up to this one ledge and then I put a piece in behind a flake and it was just a little RP. And I knew it wasn't that great. I lowered off of it. Then my friend Russ Clune went up there and he popped uh, that out and sprained his ankle. So it was dangerous how we were doing certain routes. It was very little gear, but you'd get up to this roof and you couldn't really see behind very well. And I decided that rather than go up and do the same move, getting into the roof, I wanted to know where the hold was. So I said, hang on, let me feel this hold. And, and I'm like, oh, okay, got it. And so then I was able to do the route much faster. And, and so this was crossing the line of style back then. And but it was necessary to talk about this and to go through the whole process. God, it's just fascinating to hear that at one point, not too long ago, it, it was not only considered malapropos, but also it was like groundbreaking for you to voice up and say, no, this is actually a smart way of doing it. Obviously, that's how people climb sport now and have pushed the, the grades higher and higher. It's wild that that was frowned upon at one point in time. So is that how you were able to ultimately push sport into these new limits? Like when you were working on the first 514, is that how you worked the route? I didn't top rope it. I, I did it bolt to bolt, though. I mean, I worked it. Yeah. And yeah. it was funny because John Backer was there that day. And he, I think he was really intimidated to try this sport climbing style because he wasn't going to be the best at it because there were other people that were more gymnastic approach than him. And so he got on the route and he struggled. I said, you should try it to him. I suggested you should really try it as in the whole process because the struggle is the whole thing. You don't even think you can do it at first. You look at these moves and you're thinking, huh, how am I going to do this? Wow, I have to be really strong to just throw up to that. But maybe after trying it a few times, you hit a move or two, and then you're more encouraged. Then you try to link sections, then you do the whole thing. And he didn't understand that that was hangdogging. He just said, yeah, I tried it. I don't really like it. Eh. Yeah, it's just so interesting to limit yourself to that, effectively trying something, having it feel impossible, and then walking away. Of course, back then, that might have been how things went, because you were just trying to do it ground up and not work it. But 
to really push the limits, of course, now on sport, everything feels impossible the first time you get on it. And then after a few goes, you start to link things together. You were so ahead of the game in recognizing that. Did you walk away from a lot of roots? Like, were you stopped and discouraged by that um, tactically? I have been on a lot of routes that I never finished and different for different reasons, including one that I'd bolted in Madagascar. I just was too tired by the end of it all. I'd done most of the work putting in over 50 bolts myself on that. Oh, my gosh. I think there was like 100 total. Maybe it was a 1,500, no, 2,000-foot wall. Anyway. This is a trip um, that Beth Rodden joined you on? Yeah. She was, that was before she got interested. She, she, after that trip, she went to Yosemite to learn how to trad climb and she met Tommy T Caldwell. And so that's oh, she, how her... She was a kid back then. Yeah. So actually I photographed her on her first 514 because I was still living in then. And so on to Bolter Not To Be, that same route that Backer tried. Oh, that's great. If I can get her on the show coming up next season, then I will definitely ask her about this trip. But it, it is really interesting to hear, and thank you for sharing that, you know, there are some routes that, that you've walked away from. I think that's not really a side that we hear from elite climbers that much. We, of course, always see the, the big send video, but we don't hear about climbers just leaving projects or saying, hey, I'm going to have to come back to this one. So I appreciate that. And I, I'd really like to know through a tactical lens how you look at the possibility of climbing something where stylistically and physiologically you're so different than most of the other climbers, at least back then, that you were going to be climbing with, right? So let's just take a, a size comparison. You're just over five feet tall. A lot of the people you're climbing with were going to be a foot or so taller than you, myself included. So I'm six feet. You're a little over five foot. How does that impact the way that you're going to look at a route tactically? Generally, and actually even specifically, you bring your feet up high and you use intermediates. You use holds that people don't even consider holds, bumping techniques to get your torso up over your feet and your feet are already propped as high as you think you can get them in an opposition. Then you get your torso in line and then you can, you can go up and make pretty good progress. But, you know, there are times when even my full span to, say, sloping holds that in the gym that there's actually a place, Horse Tooth, uh, Horse Pants 40, next to Bumboy, there's something I just could not get my hands around. I mean, you've got to be able to make opposition. And if you can't palm the basketball, you're just not going to be able to do that. I didn't see a way because it's completely bald rock. So that's a case where I'll look at something and say, okay, that's not for me and move on because there's so many more climbs and so many more boulders that you can do, and it's more about just the joy of doing those things or the struggle, the struggle to find that joy ultimately. And then you want to look for another one the next time. I mean, it's just never-ending cycle. All right, Lynn, we're going to shift to the mental game here, and this is super fertile ground. I'm excited to dive in, but I want to just pick up on where we left off here in the last chapter, and that's about roots that you didn't complete or didn't feel they were the right style for you, or even maybe possible for you, like you were just saying, palming the basketball. How, how is that for you? If you're walking away from something, does it feel like unfinished business to you? I always look at a root and there's some feeling in my gut. I like the way that root looks. So there's an aesthetic and you can see the holes. You can see and imagine what the moves might be like somewhat. Until you're on it, you don't really know. Some moves maybe I, I can't do right away, but I can 
pretty much tell what's within my ability range. And that's, again, you were saying time. You can do it with how much investment a day, two days, a week, a month, a year. I mean, that's projects can go on a long time. Look at Tommy and the Don Wall. That was seven years. And he put time into it, figured it out, got the fitness for it, and then did it. It's just a matter of putting it together. Let's equate that to the nose then, if we could, because when you took on your first attempt at freeing the nose, no one had ever done it. And in fact, it was widely thought that maybe it couldn't be done, or at least that you wouldn't be able to do it. And it doesn't seem like you spent a whole lot of time. It wasn't a Dawn Wall-esque investment. How do you take on an impossible project and then put it together in what was relatively a short amount of time? The nose doesn't have that many really hard pitches, but it's a, it is still a physical challenge to put it all together from the slab to the, through the cracks that are, can be somewhat strenuous, depending on if you're hauling or not, or if you're doing it in a day, you don't really have much to carry, your partner will. But um, the crux is after 2,000 feet. There's the great roof, and then there's the changing corners. And then the last pitch is no easy thing. You got to have some power left to do this one move to an edge on the, the very last overhanging bulge of El Cap. <laughs> yeah, it's a two-fingered little dink. <laughs> Well, I mean, after, by the way, pulling the changing corners, which I think uh, a lot of people would consider the crux, I, I believe you gave it like a 13B, but conventionally now it goes 14B or, or something like that. Brooke actually put that rate. He, he decided to make this topo after we had climbed it in 93 and he put that grade on. He didn't know how hard it was. I would have said it was 13D just uh, because I didn't know. And, and I think it's probably fair at 14A. <laughs> Yeah, at least 14A, I think sometimes 14AB. And God, you are such a badass for doing this climb, Lynn. But, you know, at the same time, I want to touch on this concept of people making excuses for other people's accomplishments. And at the time, and maybe now, I don't know, people would say, oh, Lynn had small fingers so she could get into the great roof where others can't. Of course, not saying at the same time, oh, Lynn's a foot shorter than everybody else and had to figure out new ways of pulling on nothing intermediates to get up these climbs where others could just reach through them. But no, we tend to excuse other people's accomplishments. I hear it all the time at the crag. I'm guilty of it myself. Oh, he's got a plus three A or he only weighs 120 pounds or whatever. It's like these things we do in our minds to maybe make ourselves feel better or try to contextualize somebody else's accomplishment. And I think by and large, the, the climbing community is really supportive, but it's not uncommon for people to say things like that. And you got the brunt of that because the world was far more sexist back when you were breaking the glass ceiling on pretty much every frigging climb there was. And that's not to say the world isn't sexist now. It sure as hell still is. But how do you mentally deal with that? I think that... Part of my journey and my struggle as a climber, as a person, has to do with my own ego, recognizing what's your motivation. If it comes from a place of ego of, I want the attention, I want whatever material gain or power or whatever people want, then you start playing games like that. Then it's not okay to just be you. And I think that staying authentic to yourself and accepting how you feel. And wow, that was really hard. Wow, I need to work on this or that. Let's just 
It's all about your attitude and the story that you tell yourself, of course. That's, I've, I saw that at about the age of 18, and I started reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead or something somebody gave me, and I thought, wow, Buddhist principles really make a lot of sense. Just be a good person, the Eightfold Path. I remember reading that at that same time, just all these things building up to being a a good person and a good citizen and a positive influence in the world. I think it was a really gracious way of saying, you know, haters going to hate and who cares? Um, and, and that's what you did. I mean, look, actions speak louder than words. And at every turn, when somebody said you couldn't do something, you certainly did. But you just touched on something here that I, I'd like to explore for a second, and that's just mindfulness in general. And is there a mindfulness practice that you have maybe that you do at the crag or before getting on a climb or, or just that you feel serves your climbing? On a climb, I, before I step off the ground, I've looked at the climb. I have a, a feeling about that climb, whether it's going to be a really exciting challenge, uh, maybe scary because I might flip backwards or whatever, and maybe there's long run out between bolts. There might be a lot of things on my mind. But before I step off the ground, I'm clear about my expectation of trying my hardest when something either like the red flag of fatigue, being confused, you don't know exactly where to go, you can't see the holds coming up or whatever. There are these moments of difficulty where you um, have to make a decision to either keep going or you probably fall off anyway. <laughs> right. So then how do you prepare yourself? What are you doing? Are you visualizing those outcomes? So you, if you prepare yourself before you step off the ground, that I know I might be scared, but when I get there, I'm, I know I've made this decision. I've decided it's safe. I'm going to be brave today and I'm going to focus on my climbing. And because not every day you're going to want to do that. Some days you're going to be like, you know what? I just want to top rope today. I've had a hard day with whatever other thing going on in your life and you just don't want to deal with it. That's fine too. Yeah, that's some really important perspective there and, and permission and grace that you can have with yourself. And, you know, I'd like to take that and, and maybe draw it to a specific example, and that's the changing corners pitch on El Cap. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe on your first attempt to free the nose, you were shut down at the changing corners and took some time off and had to try to reassess how you might make it through that pitch. And you weren't quite sure even how that might be. Can you tell me what the mental process is like for, could be for any of us, when I'm going to try my first 13A this season and I'm really feeling shut down on a move or on a section and I pack up feeling a little discouraged and a little burned out and I come home, what did you do in order to get yourself back to that place and in a position to be able to actually put it together? So I took a week off. I went up to my mother's house, which happened to be in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And I thought about, at first, when Simon went home from England, that was our ground up try. And we did do the great, or I did do the great roof on that scent from the ground up. But we couldn't do the changing corners. We ran out of food. There was a, a broken piton in the slot that I, most people use. Actually, not everybody. You don't have to do it that way. Tommy did, though. I thought, you know what? Brooke Sandal is a friend of mine who, who lived in Bend. I think I was living there at that time as well. He said, I've been up there. There's this variation. You can go to the left and then you just have to traverse into the corner. But these holds are micro. And 
it was an iron cross for me and the foothold was too far down because I, if I did the, the move with my arms, there, there was no way I, I would have even a foothold. But he decided that it would be worth trying to go, come back for him. And so I, what I was thinking in Idaho was, well, it's a corner. Even if it's a shallow corner, it's a corner. So there must be a way to get opposition using your feet. And so I imagined opposition in a corner could work somehow. And then I worked out how that might look. Oh, this is cool. So you worked it out conceptually, like in your mind while you were in Idaho, and then you went back to El Cap and did you wrap in to, to try out that move specifically? One was conceptual on vacation that I think it has potential right? because it's a corner. I, I had been there, of course, but we didn't really try the, the corner like that. But then I called Brooke and we came back and our approach was to start at the top, wrap down, see the business straight off. Got it. And after three days, I worked it out. Three days. Wow. How did that feel when you put that sequence together? I actually didn't put it all together. I just, I worked out the sequences on top rope and I said, yeah, I think this will go. No kidding. So when you, yeah. went, so when you went ground up, you hadn't even proven that you would be able to do that. Right. That's incredible. But I figured I could. All right, Lynn, I'd like to talk about things that bring you purpose and that you're passionate about beyond just rock climbing. And immediately what comes to mind, of course, is your advocacy work, both gender equality in sports and in general, and also environmental advocacy. So um, not sure where to jump in here. Why don't you just jump in? Well, I, I don't like injustice and I don't like inequality. I should probably rephrase it. I prefer to see more equality, not just with gender and inclusion and that whole diversity discussion, but like economics across the world and just more support, more socialized services that like medicine and things that we all need. And we shouldn't leave someone behind because they're not capable and, and just walk past them. I think that's basic humanity is where we really need a lot of work. So. 1% for humanity, I think is really important. And then obviously global warming. I think the plastics, France just passed a law that they can't wrap food in plastic now. And I, I just don't know why here in this country, even in this town of Boulder, we have styrofoam until next year. But mm. the law is allowing people to phase it out. But we need to get on the plastic thing. We need to be way better at renewable energy. We can do it. We just need to have the funds shifted towards that and recognize that this is a necessity, not just a priority. It's a necessity. Yeah. I mean, you just touched on some pretty major pillars, right? From equality of social services to protecting our environment to renewable energy. And God, there's a, a lot of really big causes that one can get behind. And you have really thrown your voice and your name behind some important ones. How do you choose? How, how do you decide what gets your attention and, and what you're trying to advance? I have to say them all. <laughs> they all interest me. I, I think that, like you said in the beginning, that most people associate with me with gender equality, speaking out for that. And I think that is very important. I think that women carry a lot of important roles in society and not always rewarded according to the efforts that they make in terms of equal pay or opportunities that they don't get, that other people get. And it's like, wait a minute, I was just as qualified as that other person, but that other person happens to be a man and 
if you have a child and you're in an industry like climbing, back in my time, that was not a good thing. Is that changing, do you think? What do you see in the climbing industry today compared to the mid-90s or even the early 2000s? I think it's a lot better now. I think that the Me Too movement and talk, like the, the Nike athlete that got pregnant and Nike dropped or whatever. It was a bad story. I don't know all the details, but I think those stories being very public and people looking at it, you can't be subconscious about it now. It's something that you have to pay attention to. So I think that good companies like Scarpa is a really nice Italian company, and I've just had a warm feeling about them. And they just, they acted straight up with with any interaction that I've had with them. And my friend Alex Puccio is talking about kids, and they're like, you know, that's solid. We're so happy. And and actually, Nina Caprez just announced that she's about four something months pregnant, and, and she's also sponsored by Scarpa. Mm. They're really psyched for her, so that's one good story I can tell you. Well, it's great to hear that you're seeing that trend in the business. Um, it's obviously come a long way since you were breaking barriers, but it still has a long way to go, of course. And your continued advocacy, your voice, your name, and not just lending your name and your voice, but also walking the walk, going to Capitol Hill and protesting, whether it's on behalf of gender equality or the environmental issues, it's it just sets a great example, I think, for the rest of us um, and certainly for the next generation of climbers. So thank you for doing that. Now, we only have about a minute here, and I just want to end on a note here about your life. It's been so impactful on my life and everybody else who loves this sport. And you're working on a documentary, right, with some friends. I'd like to know a little bit about that, and maybe you could just um, wrap things up by also including what your perspective is after now looking back on this incredible career, not just as a climber, but as a pioneer for the sport. Right now, I'm working on a documentary. It's been several years now that it started, and we're working on um, putting the story together of a documentary about my life, which is a little bit of advocacy and just, I guess, history too, just how things evolved. And, and I would like to leave people with a state of mind that I think kind of hinges on the good work that you're doing and, and other people in the world just trying to be more conscious and do a better job, make a better choice and, and pick the right path. For me, it's the direct path. It's the hard path, the struggle, because the struggle makes me stronger and it makes the world better if you choose the right struggles. If you just always pick the easy way, you're never going to be really giving anything to anyone either. I believe strongly in, in approaching my life like that. And I think if a lot of other people with a lot more power did that, the world would definitely be a different place and we would be on a different path. Well, here, here to that, Lynn. Uh, thank you for sharing that. We love the struggle here at The Struggle and we are so grateful. Um, I'm saying we now on behalf of all the listeners who really appreciate what you've done for the sport, for sharing your story, your struggles, your breakthroughs. Lynn, thank you. It's just been such an incredible honor. Thank you. Good luck with all your good work and to everybody in your group. And uh, thank you. And that wraps up our chat with the one and only Lynn Hill. What did y'all think of this conversation? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at underscore Lena Kalina underscore at Ryan Devlin outside and at the Struggle Climbing Show.
Now, as you could probably tell, I was kind of tripping all over myself at pretty much every moment. I was just really trying hard to keep it together during this convo. Lin is such a huge presence in the climbing world. It took me a while to get to be able to just, I don't know, see her as a person, I guess, just like you and me, who simply loves climbing and the community that we are all a part of. And I love that. And of course, she was like just totally humble and gracious throughout the whole thing. So I was the weirdo. Now, my big takeaways here are really on the mental side. You know, why do we climb? What are are our motivations? The answer to those questions will inform how we do everything from train to climb to deal with self-doubt and failure and haters. You know, Lynn's impact on the sport is hard to even quantify and her continued advocacy work within and beyond climbing itself is just something that we can all strive to emulate. And now in just a minute, I'm going to share how you can own a piece of that Lynn Hill legacy yourself. Shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. If y'all want to level up your training and performance, and I know you do, check it out. It's the best. Fizzy Vantage is now available in Europe from the Epic TV online shop. And in the US, Fizzy Vantage is available at select gyms and of course at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 for 15% off at checkout. Well, that about clips the anchors on this episode. And as I mentioned earlier, I want to give you all a chance to keep Lynn front and center in your life. Did you know that she will personally sign an epic photo of your choosing for you? Swing by her website, lynnhillclimbing.com, and just check that out. Along with her awesome gear that features the coolest phrase in climbing, it goes, boys. Now, I picked myself up a signed photo of her on the nose, personalized to my kids, who now think I'm the coolest dad in the world. And I also got a rad tank for myself that I love to climb in. And also stay tuned to the Struggle Instagram as I'm going to do a giveaway of some really cool Lynn Hill swag here soon. Lastly, if you're enjoying these shows and you're getting value from this content, please consider supporting as a patron. For the price of a fancy cup of coffee each month, you'll keep me and the climbers who make this show well caffeinated. And man, do we need it. These things are way harder to produce than we thought, but we love it. So swing on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to show your support and also score some cool gear and perks for doing it. I'm your host, Ryan Devlin, and this show was produced by Mary Mathis and I, with additional support from Emily Holland and Joel Walford. All right, let's climb hard and do good things in the world.